Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 39, Acts chapter 17. Last week in Acts chapter 16, we saw that Paul and Silas were arrested in the town of Philippi and they were thrown into jail accused of inciting a riot. It took a miraculous action of God, it was an earthquake, to free them before any permanent harm was done to the disciples. Now we're going to see something similar, minus the jail, happening in chapter 17. And we must ask ourselves, what is it that is causing such outrage in towns that have mostly Gentile populations? We're going to address that at the appropriate time during today's lesson. And as we open Acts chapter 17 now, Paul, Silah, and Timothy were again on the road it's probable that Luke was still with them, even though he's not mentioned. For the most part, since Luke is the author of Acts, he does not insert his personal presence except by implication. They were in Macedonia now, on the western shore of the Aegean Sea. This is an area that today we would consider part of Europe. Let's read about their next destination. So open your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. We're going to read the entire chapter. Acts chapter 17. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1384. After passing through Amphipolis and Apollonia, Shaul and Silah came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue. Now according to his usual practice, Shaul went in, and on three Shabbats he gave them drashes from the Tanakh, the Old Testament, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and that this Yeshua who I'm proclaiming to you is the Messiah. Now some of the Jews were persuaded and threw in their lot with Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the Greek men who were God-fearers, and not a few of the leading women. But the unbelieving Jews grew jealous. So they got together some vicious men from the riffraff, riffraff hanging around the market square, collected a crowd and started a riot in the city. They attacked Jason's house, hoping to bring Shaul and Selah out to the mob. But when they didn't find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city authorities and shouted, These men who have turned the whole world upside down have come here too. And Jason has let them stay in his home. All of them are defying the decrees of the emperor because they assert that there is another king, Yeshua. Their words threw the crowd and the authorities into a turmoil so that only after Jason and the others had posted bond did they let them go. But as soon as night fell, the brothers sent Paul and Silas off to Berea. And as soon as they arrived, they went to the synagogue. Now the people here were of a nobler character than the ones in Thessalonica. They eagerly welcomed the message. 
checking the Tanakh every day to see if the things that Shaul was saying were true. Many of them came to trust. I did a number of prominent Greek women and not a few Greek men. But when the unbelieving Jews of Thessalonica learned that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul in Berea as well, they went there too to make trouble and agitate the crowds. And the brothers sent Paul away at once to go down to the seacoast while Selah and Timothy stayed behind. Shaul's escort went with him as far as Athens, then left with instructions for Selah and Timothy to come as quickly as they could. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit within him was disturbed at the sight of the city full of idols. So he began holding discussions in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearers and in the market square every day with the people who happened to be there. Also, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers started meeting with him. Some asked, what's this babbler trying to say? Others, because he proclaimed the good news about Yeshua and the resurrection, said he sounds like a propagandist for foreign gods. Well, they took and brought him before the high council, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. Some of the things we are hearing from you strike us as strange. We'd like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners living there used to spend their spare time talking or hearing about the latest intellectual fads. Paul stood up at the council meeting and said, Men of Athens, I see how very religious you are in every way. For as I was walking around looking at your shrines, I even found an altar which had been described to an unknown god. So the one whom you are already worshipping in ignorance, this is the one I proclaim to you. The God who made the universe, everything in it, who is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in man-made temples, nor is he served by human hands as if he lacks something, since it's he himself who gives life and breath and everything to everyone. From one man... He made every nation living on the entire surface of the earth. He fixed the limits of the territories, the periods where they would flourish. God did this so that people would look for him, perhaps reach out and find him, although in fact, he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. Indeed, as some of the poets among you have said, we are actually his children. So since we are children of God, we shouldn't suppose that God's essence resembles gold and silver or stone shaped by human technique and imagination. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he is commanding all people everywhere to turn to him from their sins, for he has set a day when he will judge the inhabited world and to do it justly by means of a man whom he has designated. And he has given public proof of it by resurrecting this man from the dead. Now at the mention of a resurrection of dead people, some people began to scoff. Others said, well, we want to hear you again on this subject. So Shaul left the meeting, but some men stayed with him and they came to trust, including the high council member Dionysius. There was also a woman named Damaris. Others came to trust along with them. Paul 
had a particular destination in mind when he left Philippi. Thessalonica. Thus we are told that the group of disciples traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia just to get there. Now no doubt they took the well-known Via Ignatia highway to the to make this 90 mile approximately trek. Now Thessalonica was perhaps the major metropolis of Macedonia. So there was a sufficient Jewish population to have a synagogue. Now what we are seeing is that most every city of any consequence in the Roman Empire that had a uh, had rather a, a representative Jewish population in it. And when the population grew big enough, there a synagogue would be built. Now Paul's custom was to immediately go to the local synagogue wherever one was present. And this served him two purposes. Paul first was an observant Jew. So going to a synagogue at least once per week and usually more was a requirement for him. It was not an option. Two, that's where he would find brethren that would offer him hospitality. We know that when he arrived in Thessalonica he was there for at least four weeks because he went to synagogue for three Shabbatot, three Shabbats, three Sabbaths in a row. And we're told that Paul reasoned with the members of the synagogue from the scriptures. Now, the complete Jewish Bible has substituted the word drashot for the word reasoned. And while that's not a direct translation, it is, from the Jewish cultural perspective, correct. You see, drash is one of several scriptural study methods used by Jewish teachers and rabbis. The word means searching. Now about the closest thing we can get in English to translate drash would be exegetical Bible teaching, what we do here in the Seed of Abraham Torah class. That is, a scripture passage is read and then an interpreter, interpretation rather, or an explanation for it's given. Allegory was sometimes used. But in general, a drash is an attempt to exact a more straightforward meaning, usually including an application. We might call it Bible study. However, when it's given at a synagogue, it would always be accompanied with ritual prayers and worship as part of an overall customary synagogue service. Now since Paul was at a synagogue, then naturally whatever argument he would make for his point of view would revolve around quoting the Tanakh, the Old Testament. Now that might seem a bit redundant for me to tell you something like that, but my reason for doing so is because when Paul talked to pagans, don't miss this, when Paul talked to pagans, he did not use scripture. Jews, of course, knew and they were receptive to scripture passages as a source of evidence for Paul's statements. But pagans, they knew nothing of the Tanakh. So for Paul to try to persuade them by quoting from the Bible would have been 
faithless. As, as pagan Gentiles had no familiarity, no regard for Scripture. Thus, because Paul was in a synagogue, he was speaking to Jews and to God-fears, and his goal was to persuade the congregation before him that Yeshua, Jesus, is the Messiah. That involved explaining how Yeshua could be that person if, in fact, he'd been killed. But even more, Paul had to convince them that Yeshua had also been resurrected. Since synagogues were usually run by the Pharisees, or at least they adopted Pharisee doctrines, then resurrection was not a foreign concept to them. Yet, just as with the Jews in Judea, few could accept the thought of a suffering and of an executed Messiah. Standard synagogue teaching and belief was that a Messiah would be a charismatic military leader and he would come to lead the Jews in rebellion against Rome with an outcome that Israel would rise again as an independent Jewish kingdom and essentially replace the Roman Empire. So at best, this was a pretty hard sell. Now verse 4 tells us that Paul had the typical results that he experienced in all the synagogues he taught in. Some of the congregation believed, the majority did not. And it was a mix of Jews and God-fearers who became believers. And as typical, the Jews who did not accept Paul's doctrines became upset. Some of them took action against him. In this case, the Jews enlisted the help of some unemployed troublemakers and they aroused the passions of the townsfolks against the disciples. <clears throat> now apparently in Thessalonica, the disciples were enjoying the hospitality of a man named Jason, probably a believing Jew. Now Jason was one of the Greek language forms that diaspora Jews took for the standard Hebrew name Joshua. If he wasn't a believing Jew, it's pretty hard to imagine why he would have put himself at such risk to shelter Paul and the other three disciples. However, we're, we're not told for sure one way or the other. Now these no-goods that were used to foment the riot were hanging around the Agora. The Agora was a public open space, kind of like a park, if you would, that is very typical of Greek cities. And it was used for meeting. It was used for those who had something to say, to make speeches. And athletic events would often be held there. Now apparently Paul and the others got wind of this trouble. And they that was coming, and they fled Jason's house before the mob arrived. Well, the rioters confronted Jason. They looked through his home. They couldn't find the disciples, so they hauled Jason before the town politarchs. Now, politarchs were a particular kind of high-level magistrates, and the crowd charged Jason with harboring these Jewish agitators. Now, naturally, angry mobs tend to exaggerate whatever claims they might have. 
And in this case, they said that these particular Jews, well, they had upset the entire world. Now they're here in Thessalonica to do the same. This would be a good time to explain, I think, the issue at the heart of the upset of the entire town because this would be the same issue that was going to follow Paul wherever he went. The Roman Empire, you see, had a policy of religious tolerance. In general, anyone could worship their local gods without interference. Thus, the Jews were also free to worship their god and to build their synagogues and so on. But what no one was permitted to do was neither to create disturbances nor to challenge the authority of Roman law or the local magistrates and especially one could not challenge the supremacy of the Roman Emperor. To put it another way, while there was plenty of religious tolerance, there was no political tolerance. The Jews represented a particularly troublesome conundrum for the Romans. They were unlike any other ethnic group in that they tended to stay true to their religion and to their ethnic identity because the Jews considered those two aspects of Jewish life as inseparable. And the Jews, well, appreciative of the tolerance shown to them, were themselves not at all tolerant towards the pagan religions that represented the majority of the citizens of the empire. The more pious among the diaspora Jews showed open contempt for the gods and the many pagan religions that they lived among. They also tended to refuse participation in the national festivals that invariably involved Roman or Greek gods and goddesses. Festivals that were intended to unite this smorgasbord of, of peoples and nations that formed the Roman Empire. The Jews also had a bent towards creating ghettos and boroughs where they would practice their unique Jewish lifestyle, shunning the local and national traditions and observances. Now because of their Babylonian exile, some 600 years earlier, the Jews had scattered, mostly on their own accord, far and wide. But most of them did not assimilate into the Gentile world, although some did, to varying degrees. Jews therefore remained quite identifiable, which was their intent. In other words, they stuck out like sore thumbs. So while the Romans were busily trying to institute a universal Hellenist culture throughout their empire, the Jews led the way in resisting it. The Jews had entirely different moral standards. They educated their children differently. They conducted their lives differently. This made them visibly separate and distinct from the many other ethnic groups. It's not at all unlike in Europe or America today where we have this growing immigrant population of Muslims who wear their own particular garb, meet at mosques, eat only halal foods, usually prefer to speak Arabic or Farsi or some other unfamiliar Middle Eastern dialect to us. And they tend to take over certain areas of cities in order to cluster together 
and generally they refuse assimilation. Our national principle of religious freedom allows them to worship their unique God. But that doesn't mean that we're entirely comfortable with this. The Muslims also usually do not celebrate our national holidays. And so combined with all these other factors, it makes the more traditional Europeans and Americans suspicious of them. Partly because their ways are so foreign to us, we can't tell if what they're doing is benign or potentially harmful to us as a nation. It bothers us that they don't seem to want to be American or, or, or European. Rather, they want to import their culture to our nation or even try to change us to their ways. Now, provided these people stay to themselves, don't start trouble, we tolerate them. But when something unsettling happens involving Muslims, it ups the level of our suspicion, it lowers the level of our acceptance of them as a group. This is a really good analogy of how the Jews were viewed in the Roman Empire. Now as concerns Paul and his merry band of evangelistic disciples. They represented a particular problem. They didn't just bother the local Gentile population in similar ways as did the other Jews who lived there. They also seemed to rile up the local Jewish population. Now, it's not that the Gentiles even understood why Paul was embraced by some of the local Jews and rejected by the others. They weren't at all familiar with the intricacies and the nuances of Judaism. All they knew is that this particular group of itinerant Jews caused upset wherever they went. And when they upset the local Jews, the local Jews upset the local Gentiles. And when the local Jews and Gentiles together began forming a mob to take action against Paul and the local believers, this upset the Roman authorities. Because they were always on the lookout for rebellion. And when the Roman authorities got upset, the local politicians feared for their jobs. And when the local politicians feared for their jobs, they looked for somebody to blame. So they blamed those that seemed to be the source of the problem. The Jews. Bottom line. For the Gentiles and for the Roman authorities, this was not about religion. This was about political and civil unrest. And of course, when we read in verse 7 that the Gentiles think that Paul is declaring Yeshua to be a king who is in defiance of the emperor of Rome, they can't make the distinction between his meaning this in a religious sense versus their paranoid thinking that he means this in a political sense. <clears throat> this is probably the most serious allegation of them all. Because to the average citizen, this sounds like sedition. So when the Politarchs heard these charges, they joined the mob. They were perturbed. Because if they didn't do something about it, they were going to be accused of being complicit. This was essentially the same charge 
that had been leveled at Paul and company at Philippi. A charge that resulted in jail. Now, of course, everyone knew this charge was bogus. I mean, after all, the supposed rival king, Yeshua, had been executed some 15 years earlier. So, it was the mere thought of some Jews wanting a king that might challenge the emperor that was the issue. It was words, it was thoughts that simply could not be uttered no matter how remote or how benign the reality of it. It was essentially the ultimate political incorrectness. But for these itinerant Jews to be the ones to say those words, that made them eat more than just traveling troublemakers. Well, at least the politarchs of Thessalonica didn't react like the judges did in Philippi, or better, they didn't overreact. Rather, they approached this matter a little bit more thoughtfully. First of all, any evidence of a conspiracy to enthrone a new king over Rome just didn't exist. But second, the supposed conspirators were nowhere to be found. So essentially the proposed solution of this was to make Jason and his friends responsible to see to it that no further trouble occurred. They had to put up a bond that ensured that Paul and his three companions would behave, or better, leave and go be some other city's problem. And as much as the fearless crusader Paul would have liked to stay and face his detractors and continue preaching the gospel, see, it would have come at Jason's expense. So with the help of some local believers, the disciples stealthily left for Berea. Verse 10 now picks up with that story. But before we go there, I think now would be a good time to make a connection that's, that's really easily overlooked. Now I mentioned last time, that as we see the names of these several cities in Macedonia where Paul established believers among several synagogue congregations, names like Corinth and Philippi and Thessalonica, we need to immediately connect the New Testament books of Corinthians, Philippians, and Thessalonians because Paul's letters bearing those titles were to the congregations who resided in those aforementioned cities. So understanding now what just went on in Philippi, now in Thessalonica, let's read the first couple of chapters of 1 Thessalonians. See, because Paul is writing very shortly, days after they got run out of town. And thus, what we just have studied now and Acts 17 is the context for the letter called the book of 1 Thessalonians. And without the context of Acts chapter 17, we missed the point of the first book of Thessalonians. Open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians. We're going to read chapters 1 and 2. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 14. 74. These are short chapters. 1 Thessalonians chapters 1 and 2. From Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the Messianic community of the Thessalonians united with God the Father 
and with the Lord Yeshua the Messiah. Grace to you and shalom. We always thank God for all of you, regularly mentioning you in our prayers, calling to mind before God our Father, what our Lord Yeshua the Messiah has brought about in you, how your trust produces action, your love, hard work, your hope, perseverance. Now we know, brothers, that God has loved and chosen you, that the good news we brought did not become for you a matter only of words, but also one of power. The Holy Spirit and total conviction, just as you know how we lived for your sakes when we were with you. You indeed became imitators of us and of the Lord, so that even though you were going through severe trouble, you received the word with joy from the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. Thus you became a pattern for all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the Lord's message sounded forth from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but everywhere your trust towards God became known. The result is that we don't need to say anything since they themselves kept telling us about the welcome we received from you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the true God, the one who is alive, and to wait for his son Yeshua, whom he raised from the dead to appear from heaven and rescue us from the impending fury of God's judgment. Chapter 2. Now you yourselves know, brothers, that our visit to you wasn't fruitless, on the contrary, although we had already suffered and been outraged in Philippi, as you know, we had the courage, united with our God, to tell you the good news even under great pressure. For the appeal we make does not flow from error or from impure motives, neither do we try to trick people. Instead, since God has tested us and found us fit to be entrusted with this good news, this is how we speak. Not to win favor with people, but with God, who tests our hearts. For as you know, never did we employ flattering talk, nor did we put on a false front to mask greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek human praise, either from you or from others. As emissaries of the Messiah, we could have made our weight felt. But instead, we were gentle when we were with you, like a mother feeding and caring for her children. We were so devoted to you that we were glad to share with you not only God's good news, but also of our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our toil and our hardship, how we worked night and day not to put a burden on any of you while we were proclaiming God's good news to you. You are witness, so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless our behavior was in the sight of you believers. For you know that we treated each one of you the way a father treats his children. We encouraged you, we comforted you, we appealed to you to lead lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and to his glory. Now another reason we regularly thank God is that when you heard the word of God from us, you received it, not merely as a human word, but as it truly is, God's word, which is at work in you believers. For brothers, you came to be imitators of God's congregations in Judah that are united with the Messiah Yeshua. You suffered the same things from your countrymen as they did from the Judeans who both killed the Lord Yeshua and the prophets and chased us out too. 
They are displeasing God. They are opposing all mankind by trying to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be delivered. Their object seems to be always to make their sins as bad as possible. But God's fury will catch up with them in the end. Now for us brothers, when we were deprived of your company for a short time, in person but not in thought, we missed you. Tried hard to come and see you. We wanted so much to come to you. I, Shaul, tried more than once, but the adversary stopped us. For when our Lord Yeshua returns, what will be our hope, our joy, our crown to boast about? Won't it be you? Yes, you are our glory and our joy. So the troubles we just read about in Acts 17, some of it carried over from chapter 16 concerning Philippi, this is what Paul's writing about to the Thessalonians in order to explain his abrupt departure, why he hadn't then returned to the Thessalonian congregation. No doubt this congregation in Thessalonica was continuing to take the brunt of the ire of the local Gentiles. Now I advise that you finish reading the remaining three short chapters of 1 Thessalonians on your own now that you have a context for better understanding it. My point in going here is to keep emphasizing that the Bible is organic. It's not a series of unconnected dots. It all works together. And we have to approach it that way. Then our learning and our understanding multiplies. Well, back to Acts 17, verse 10. Now in Berea, the disciples heeded, uh, headed to the local synagogue. And Berea, you see, and Philippi and Thessalonica, they were probably the three largest cities in Macedonia. It turns out that those synagogue members in Berea were much more receptive to the gospel than those in Thessalonica. Now why we don't know for certain. But my speculation is that it is because they studied the scriptures to seek their truth rather than relying on long-held doctrines and traditions of Judaism. I think this is the case because the defining characteristic of the Berean congregation is spoken in verse 11. It says, they accepted the message with eagerness and examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. See, here's a principle that's too often violated in Christian circles. Instead of listening to what our teachers and pastors say and then carefully checking in the scriptures for confirmation, too often teachers and leaders are set up on a pedestal and it's assumed that they'd never be wrong or don't have a hidden agenda or simply aren't defending just a questionable church doctrine. Is this unwise trust on our part or is it a profound laziness I guess I don't know. But either way, the congregation, you, 
you have the responsibility to ensure that whatever you're receiving from anyone or from me is truth and light. And the gold standard by which all is to be measured against is not how we feel in our hearts. It's not what tickles our ears. It's what God's Word actually says. Now, just as at Thessalonica, in addition to the many Jews who embraced Yeshua and Berea, so did many God-fearers. It is made clear that among the believers were female and male Greeks, even the wealthy. But the good times were to dissipate quickly when word reached Thessalonica of Paul's presence over in Berea, some unbelieving Jews from Thessalonica made the trip to Berea to try and foment trouble for the disciples. And I'm going to reiterate, this was not a religious issue that was the cause of these Thessalonians coming to town. Rather, it was political and civil. And since Paul and his companions had escaped Thessalonica without facing the music, the Thessalonians wanted payback. And since Paul was the spokesman and the obvious leader, it was that he was the primary target. So Timothy and Silad and probably Luke, who was a Gentile, was generally incognito, sent Paul to the seacoast so he could catch a, chip, uh, catch a, a, a ship to Athens. And some of the brethren from Berea accompanied Paul to Athens, no doubt as protection. Now Paul sent a message back with them to tell Selah and Timothy to come to Athens to join him as quickly as they could. Now Athens was a unique place at this time. It was considered as the birthplace of democracy and a seat of intellectualism. It's what today we might call a college town. But it was also a Greek city, not a Roman city. So they enjoyed a special status that exempted them from the Roman provincial system. All Paul saw was this myriad of idols placed all over the city and it greatly offended his Jewish sensibility. The second commandment specifically addressed this issue and it forbade having anything to do with idols. Now Paul had seen idols in cities since he was a child. I mean, he was after all a diaspora Jew who was born and raised in Tarsus of Cilicia. But Athens? It was a veritable garden of idols. Paul could barely control his outrage. Now depending on how pious a Jew thought of himself, we read in the Talmud of Jews that wouldn't even pass through the gates of cities that were adorned with welcome idols. We also read from an early Christian theologian, Hippolytus, that some Jews wouldn't carry or even touch a coin if it had a likeness or an image on it, and by that time most, most coins did. Paul might not have been this radically zealous, but verse 15 makes it clear he was greatly troubled and agitated by what he saw in Athens. Now if I might comment. <clears throat> I kind of think that the more a person spends time in prayer, 
and in scripture study doing the sorts of things that bring us closer to God the harder it is for us to ignore the worldly if not downright wicked things that surround us you know things that have always been there things that most people don't even think twice about but merely accept as usual and normal things we simply overlooked but suddenly their presence arouses a deep righteous indignation within us and we can't stop pondering about them even though we wish we could we're bothered all the time about it such is the uncomfortable state of a devout follower of Christ less so for the more liberal Christian mindset that constantly adjusts their faith to whatever new trends and political correctnesses arise Paul had lived much of his early years viewing idols every day now his spirit is deeply disturbed by them and he can't help but take action so what did Paul do? he redoubled his effort to spread the gospel with Athens being exhibit number one of why humans need to hear about Yeshua and the God of Israel it's a strange irony in this world that the more that humanism increases the more that godliness decreases the more that intellectualism is sought after the more that wisdom is shunned and thus in verse 17 we see that Paul goes to the local synagogue congregation in Athens but unlike with the Bereans who compared what Paul said with Holy Scripture we find that Paul only reasoned we're told with the members of the Athens synagogue and that he also went to the local marketplace to reason with the pagan Gentiles no mention is made of the Torah or of Scripture being involved the point is that in this city of Athens that prided itself with self-governance always seeking a progressive lifestyle embracing the newest thoughts and the latest philosophies Paul couldn't even deal with the Jews and God-fearers of Athens using scripture because it was primarily intellectual reasoning that impressed them but Paul also encountered a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers who listened to what he was saying in the streets of Athens. But because they considered themselves as the intellectual elite, they considered him a babbler. Let's understand what Epicureans and Stoics were, what they believed, because it's going to help us to understand why Paul necessarily approaches them as he does. Now first understand that these two groups were rivals. So our first clue is that whatever philosophies they embraced, they consisted mostly of opposite principles. The Epicureans were named after their founder Epicurus, who lived three centuries earlier. They denied the existence of an all-powerful, purposeful God and they claimed that the universe was created spontaneously and all that existed was purely the result of mathematical chance. Does that sound familiar? 
In fact, they had no regard for the Greek and Roman god systems. They expressed contempt towards these idols and temples and priests and their flocks of followers. Yet, ironically, they did not dismiss the existence of gods. Rather, they thought the gods were human-like in their qualities, but also they didn't involve themselves in the affairs of humans. Now, the Epicureans also did not believe that a soul lived on after the death of the body. The Jewish Sadducees would have agreed with them. In fact, the soul was not ethereal. It was as material as flesh and blood. Thus, since there was no life after death, the here and now, that's all that mattered. So they fashioned their life's aim as the pursuit of pleasure and gratification. Morality was a meaningless, needless burden. Essentially, the Epicureans were early anarchists. The Stoics claimed Zeno of Cyprus as their founder. Not surprisingly, he lived at exactly the same time as the founder of the Epicurean school of philosophy. Now, for them, God was like the force in a Star Wars movie. They adhered to some hazy concept of God being embodied in the totality of the universe. Or perhaps as the moving spirit that gave energy and life to the universe. A human had an ethereal soul. But at death, this soul would lose any individuality. Instead, it would join into the life force of the universe. And thus essentially they were absorbed into whatever God was. Now the Stoics sought an unmoved, kind of passionless existence. They were mainly concerned with being in harmony with nature. Thus, they were apathetic regarding the human condition. They did not seek pleasure as the be-all, end-all, like the Epicureans, because for them, neither pleasure nor discomfort mattered. Essentially, outside of a never-ending search for knowledge, there was nothing else worth living for. Reason, enlightenment, this was the only reasons to exist. So when a Stoic reached a point in which they either physically or mentally could no longer gain more knowledge, or they had lost any interest in learning more, then the only reasonable and logical solution was suicide. Their founder took this path. Many thousands of Stoics did as well. Thus both Stoicism and Epicureanism find biblical religion to be childish fantasy and illogical. I don't think after my descriptions of these two mainstream philosophies of Athens that I need to draw the comparisons with what we see going on all around us today. I'm sure these words, were, I hope they were at least resonating with you. Now they certainly don't go by those names in our time, but the underlying principles remain. And what these principles bring to humanity 
a hopeless existence and a hopeless future. The 18th century Enlightenment era brought about by the likes of the, of the European intellectuals Hume and Kant and, and Voltaire and a few more, which is the basis for virtually all the societies of the Western world today, and that has also, by the way, greatly infected the church at large, as well as much of Judaism, is nothing but a deadly mixture of ancient Epicurean and Stoic philosophies. So these are the people that Paul was going to try to reach. How could he possibly go about this in terms they would be willing to hear and accept as at least plausible? That's what we're going to look at in our next lesson.